all of us should be willing to pay whatever taxes are necessary to enable efficient government to improve or expand any essential service. You have a beautiful tax return. The nicest one I've ever seen. Okay, folks, but remember your manners. No stampeding. Walk slow, like you do when you come to pay your taxes. Hi, I'm Stephen Dean. This is The Tax Maven. Here we are going to, in each episode, talk to our tax maven, who will be a person proving Archimedes' point that a single person with a lever long enough and a place to put it can change the world. The lever in this case is tax, and the place to put it is here at NYU Law. Today's tax maven does something most tax experts rarely do. She talks to people. Her research focuses on people living in poverty. Part of that work has been talking to low-income taxpayers about what the tax law means to them. Much of what she finds is surprising. For many of the working poor, tax law is not something to be feared, but something to be celebrated, an essential part of being a hardworking American. I'm Stephen Dean, the faculty director of the Graduate Tax Program at NYU Law, and I'm here today with Sarah Green, professor of law at Duke. Um, So, Sarah, I know you don't consider yourself a tax person, um, but you seem to write a lot about tax, um, and it's obviously something you're interested in. Uh, What interests you about tax? I think what interests me about tax, it I got started really talking to people who received the earned income tax credit. And what interests me about tax is that it plays a significant role in the lives of people who um, are poor, or especially the working poor. Um, but they don't. But but I think that they don't necessarily consider it tax in the way we in the law school think about tax as a you know, something to study, they consider it as really a lifeline. Um, and so, which it's not how a lot of us, when we think about tax today, we think about, ooh, you know, I might owe taxes, what do you owe to the government? But for people living in poverty, because of the AITC and other tax credits, they both see it as a lifeline and really a way that they are like other Americans, that they are like the middle class. Um, and so I see it as really this interesting tax as a sort of interesting thing that people think about in different ways and plays a significant role in the lives of um, lower income people. And I study people who live in poverty. And so that's how I got interested. Uh, Sounds perfectly natural. Uh, And, um, you know, as a lot of folks will know, the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit, is essentially a wage subsidy uh, for low wage workers. And of course, like a lot of tax provisions, it can be a little complicated. Um, But uh, it certainly is um, an important feature of the law for a lot of people and maybe one of the most important features of the law for uh, a pretty uh, big segment of the population. Right. And what's interesting is it's a wage subsidy, but when I spoke to, you know, 150, 200 recipients of the EITC, they don't think of it as a wage subsidy. Hmm. They think of it as just a tax credit is the way, you know, is what they call it. Some people get tax credits because they pay mortgages. Some people get tax credits because they use solar powered cars. Um, And so to them, it's just being American, getting a tax refund. And that was what was so interesting. So a lot, many people, when I said, Said, you know, tell me about tax day. Many people said, thank God for tax day. Um, you know, tax day is like Christmas. Many, many people said Christmas in February. I heard over and over again. Um, but they don't think of it as I get this because my income is low. They think of it as I get this because I work um, and everybody gets some amount of a tax refund and, you know, in their mind. And this is just what I get because I work hard. Um, and that's what I found very interesting. In it. But this is what I get because I work hard, but also I need this, um, and this is this is the only way I get through the year. This is the way I pay down my debt. This is the way I buy my children uniforms for school. I depend on this. For hardworking Americans living in poverty, 
even a relatively small tax credit can make a big difference. So I think for people who receive the EITC, there's a whole group sort of post-welfare reform um, that Kathy needed and others I've written about who are not working. So there, But if you take out that group, for people who are working, who are receiving the EITC, and I spoke to families with children, um, so they were, and, and I everyone who qualified for my study were receiving $2,000 or more. So they were receiving significant tax refunds. Um, and for them, um, this was really a way it did encourage work. And a lot of them had been on welfare um, previously, and they really contrasted the way they felt receiving a tax refund to being on welfare. And a lot of them in sociology, we call it creating boundaries. So a lot of them talked about other people who had been on welfare and sort of said some of them were cheating, some of them you know, had drug issues, but for me, something happened like my daughter needed heart surgery, you know, and so I had to stop working that time I received welfare, but it was really intrusive. Caseworkers were coming to my house all the time. Um, I felt like the government was watching me. A lot of people said, I am never going back to that. You know, no matter what I do, um, I don't want to receive welfare again. Um, but working and receiving this tax credit um, I, this is this is great. And this is people talked about most people would use the tax credit um, for, as I said, paying down debt. But a lot of them would reserve a small amount of money for things like buying their child Disney bedding or something to make their child feel like, you know, even using it for money for the ice cream truck. So small amounts, but something to make them feel like they were middle class. From your work, are there um, lessons you've learned about the EITC uh, that could help policymakers uh, make it even better? Yeah. So I think one um, one thing I learned is that what a lot of people were doing is over the course of the year, they would experience financial shocks. So we've, you know, we've been hearing about this in news. So something would happen, they would lose their job, a child would get sick. So maybe they would take a week off in, in the hospital and then get fired because they're working in the service industry where you can't just take off some number of days, um, you know, the, even just a car repair. Um, and so then they would use credit cards. So credit cards is a way to get through. So they would, if they lost some income, they would use credit cards essentially as a safety net because there really wasn't any other safety net when they were working. Um, and then whatever they charged, the interest would compound. They wouldn't be able to pay it back right away. And so they were charging up huge amounts of really, you know, debt, they they had all this debt that they had to pay down um, using credit cards. So then when they got their EITC, their initial plan, because we gave them a survey, would be to save some of it, which is what policymakers want. You know, they had dreams of their children going to college, moving to better neighborhoods with better schools. But then the reality hit when they received it and they had all this debt. So then they paid down the debt. A lot of it was interest and fees on credit cards. Um, and so one program, I think, I think there were there are different things you could do. But one thing you you could do is automatically have some amount of the EIT saved into some kind of fund um, where people could access it if they needed it, um, but it would be there as a kind of savings mechanism. And then also, if four months into the year they needed some money, um, it was in that savings account for them. So I think that's one thing. I mean, it used to be that you could opt in to get the EITC monthly, but I think it was like less than 1% of people did that. This is slightly different where people really liked the lump sum, but what they, and they sort of used it as a savings mechanism for themselves, like for savings. But then when they got it, they felt like they had to spend it on their debt. So some way to kind of have it be more of a safety net or a savings account, I think, would be useful. Well, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, people, again, respond in unexpected ways uh, to, um, to programs, uh, including the EITC, 
Um, and it sounds like um, this is a way to uh, make that work for people <laughs> rather yeah, than against I them. So. I mean, that's that's sort of the that's sort of the the um, that's sort of the trick, I guess. Right. Uh, making sure that uh, uh, people's psychological quirks um, are used in their own favor. I don't right. Know. I think I think so. I mean, people would talk about more. Many of the people we interviewed talked about claiming zero, is what they called it, and they would say this again and again. So they would purposely would they claim zero, so put down you know fewer dependents, so that more was saved, um, because they saw it as forced savings, and a lot of them were unbanked. Um, they had had bad experiences with banks with overdraft fees, that sort of thing. So they didn't use banks um, as savings accounts. They used checking check. Places. So this was almost a way of creating their own savings account throughout the year and then getting the money when they need it, the, which, you know, on one on one hand doesn't seem rational because you're not what then you're using a credit card. Right. To, uh, but on the other hand, um, for them, they they felt like that worked um, because then at a certain point in the year, at least they had this money. Professor Green's work has helped her see the impact of tax law on Americans living in poverty. Sales taxes can have a big impact on inequality, and that's no accident. One area that's at least underexplored, so let's let's say that, is um, the role of state and local taxes. And so, you know, I think a lot of times when we write about when tax people, as you say, write about tax and inequality. They focus on um, federal law. They think about how can we make tax more progressive. You know, what the, we've talked about the wealth tax on a federal level recently in the news. But state and local tax matter a lot. Um, so, in, for example, there are states that have no income tax. So on its face, that might look great for anyone, even low-income people. Great. They get to keep all of their um, income. But what happens is in a lot of those states, and this is based on work that Catherine Newman has done and others, um, in a lot of those states, they actually have very high sales tax. Um, and so, and that's how, in some sense, they're making up for um, the lack of income tax or a lower income tax. And so for people who are low income, that in, that that sales tax is a higher percentage of their income when they're buying goods and services than someone who is wealthier. And so if they buy a washing machine um, and it let's say it's $500 and then there's an 8% tax, that's significant for them. And when you add that up as, as a proportion of their income, that's actually high. So someone living, particularly southern states, tend to have high sales taxes. And so someone living in um, like Mississippi, who's living in poverty as one or two children, is sometimes making like $2,300 less than the same person living and working in a northern state. That matters. That matters when you're living paycheck to paycheck. And you note that it hasn't always been that way historically. Right, right. So this kind of goes back um, to post-slavery reconstruction. Um, during that time, um, once slavery was over and there were a lot of people who um, needed support, needed, you know, didn't, have, didn't own land, um, we started seeing higher property taxes. Um, when that happened, land, white landowners, plantation owners did not like that. Um, and so they advocated against it. They got people into the legislature legislature to try to change this uh, fairly quickly. Um, and they even put super, they put clauses in the Constitution to make it super majority clauses to make it so that the lower tax rate, which they got, um, property tax rate would stay. But then states had to find a way to make up for that when you have lower property taxes. And so one way they did that um, was to instill sales taxes. So first, you know, you would see the first sales tax, and then that kind of took over. California, other states have had that issue as well. Well, it's interesting because uh, people don't often think of property taxes as progressive, right. um, but 
I guess it's it's all relative. Right. And I mean, I, you know, there are issues with property taxes and gentrification. People, you know, can't afford them um, and move out. So it, it depends how you think about it. But if you if you think about it, people who have wealth tend to own more property, um, more expensive property. They owe a greater share. Um, and, and particularly if you think, you know, we're in New York City right now, um, who owns property in New York City? You know, most low income people don't. Um, and so, you know, taxing property is a way to redistribute it. With debt and social programs, Professor Green notes that Americans living in poverty tend to make fine distinctions between those they see as fair and unfair. In her experience, tax tends to be seen differently, in part because of the tax law's complexity. There's certain debt that they feel a responsibility to pay back, and there are also certain debts that they try to pay back because they see it as a path towards homeownership um, to essentially upward mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other debts that they kind of order that they think um, either I wasn't really responsible for that um, or I was tricked. Um, that happens a lot. And so they're less likely to pay back that debt. With social welfare programs, they know I receive welfare because I'm poor. I receive food stamps because I'm poor. Um, and with taxes, I think it's more of a black box where uh. they don't really understand tax. A lot of them, when we ask them with the EITC, for example, do you think what do you think you'll receive next year? They don't know. They just say, I pray to God that I do receive something. Um, So I think that's what's interesting about using tax um, as a mechanism for potentially um, redistribution, for um, elevating people out of poverty, that they actually don't think about. Hmm. Very few people I've talked to really think about the sales tax as unfair. Um, They don't, you know, they don't think about it at all. I have uh, one more question for you. Mm -hmm. If you get it right, uh, I'm going to give you this lovely uh, NYU Law Graduate Mm -hmm. Tax Program pencil. Uh, The stakes are high. Okay. The stakes are high. Um, And so, again, I know you're not a tax person. uh, So, in a way, this is um, a totally unfair question. Okay. But I'm going to ask it anyway. In the tax law, one of the reasons people don't understand tax law, uh, and some of the folks you talk to uh, find it somewhat of a black box, Mm -hmm is our love of uh, odd phrases. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So uh, I'm going to read you um, a sentence from an article by uh, Leah Sofsky, who's naughty and who's nice, uh, friction screening and tax law design. And uh, I'm going to let you, I'm going to give you three choices. uh, And you can maybe tell tell me what you think the the phrase is that goes in the the missing uh, missing spot. So uh, the blank rule uses sale and repurchase of substantially identical stock within a short period of time as likely correlated with and therefore indicative of tax planning motivation. And the three choices are the round the world rule, okay, the down under rule, or the wash sale rule. <laughs> um, the wash sale rule because it sounds unusual? That is correct. All right. You got it right. So you uh, are, you know, you denied being a tax person, but now we have total proof that you are an absolute tax person. Clearly. Thank you. Great pencil. uh, Purple's my favorite color. Is that really? Yeah. That's that's fantastic. Um, So uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for uh, joining us today. Thank you for listening to The Tax Maven. Uh, And I also want to give a very special thank you to those that helped make the podcast possible. Patrick Kelly, Joe Rivera, Greg Addison, Rebecca Carmichael, Jill Racklin, and Anthony Pietrangelo. And thank you, Rachel Burns. The NYU Law Graduate Tax Program has been the premier place to learn about tax law for the past 75 years. So please visit us on the web. Visit our Graduate Tax Program website to see the different programs we offer, both in person and online. 
both for lawyers and non-lawyers. Take a look at what we offer, uh, and I hope you consider joining us. And now, we like to end each of our episodes with a quote about taxes read by one of our students. Today's student quote we read by Quan Ting from Taipei, Taiwan. It's a quote from B. John Williams, and it's taken from 100 Years of the Tax Code, 100 Tax Quotes Compiled and Arranged by Jeffrey L. Yeblon that was published in Tax Notes. The tax system touches more people in this country than any other part of the government or our laws. The laws of confidence confidence in its integrity is the loss of confidence in the government itself. Please email us at info at taxmavenpodcast.com if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. And if you are a student uh, and want to email us a recording of your favorite tax quote, please email it there as well. Thanks for tuning in.